turned off again. There we go. Okay. Well, we are in Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're going to start at verse 32 and work our way to the end of the chapter, Lord willing. <clears throat> this morning, as we continue to walk through the book of Acts, we take a shift. We were with uh, Peter for a while, and then we were introduced to Paul at the end of chapter 7, and then we were reintroduced to Peter, and then we were reintroduced to, actually Saul, and then we were reintroduced to Saul in his conversion, and then this, his subsequent early ministry afterwards, and now in the end of chapter 9, we're going to revert back to Peter again, and we're going to remain with Peter for a couple chapters before finally Peter gets shelved in chapter 11, that is, he kind of disappears from the scene, and Paul becomes prominent, and the only other time that Peter shows up in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 15, which we'll get to when we get there. But we are returning to Peter at this point in time. It's an interesting study in Peter's ministry. But before we begin, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will uh, examine uh, the text. Lord, help us. Help us to understand. Help us to see. Help us to see clearly. Help us to see with spiritual eyes your truth. <clears throat> and the only reason why we can boldly pray that is because you've promised to do that in your children's lives. So we ask you to do what you've promised. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to not just see it and understand it, but that we will worship, that we will be challenged, that we will be encouraged, that we will be reminded, and that we will worship you. So glorify yourself in our study this morning. Give me wisdom to present the, what the Scripture says. Help me to present it accurately and truthfully. And uh, for your glory, in your name I pray. Amen. So starting in verse 32 of Acts chapter 9, let's read to the end of the chapter, verse 43, and then we will... Uh, study the, in, the intricacies of the text a bit. Starting in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he met a man named, and however you pronounce this, uh, how is it? Aeneas. Interesting, in Greek it's pronounced differently, but I, was, I know it's, it also is uh, in Greek mythology too, but depending on what section of Greek it um, the word is uh, spoken differently. Aeneas, there we go. Um, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days, with one tan, uh, Simon, a tanner. 
There's our text this morning. So we're basically introduced to two people. We're reminded of Peter, and then we're introduced to two individuals, and we're introduced then thirdly to two groups of people. So that's the scenario that we have here. The obvious first character we're introduced to is, is again, Peter. Peter, an apostle. Peter, an apostle, is described in 32 and following, specifically 32, as going here and there among them all. So Peter is traveling freely. And the reference of here and there among them all is referring to from Jerusalem up to Samaria, to Galilee, to Joppa, to all these different places, Sharon, all these different places. He's just traveling freely. In spite of, it's interesting though that he put, they put it this way because this is in spite of the persecution. In the midst of the persecution, we can, we can maybe uh, maybe say that perhaps God is protecting him personally from the persecution so he can go and minister to people. Be that as it may, he's traveling freely and he's ministering to people. Our, uh, so we have Peter, the front and center character. Actually, Jesus is the front and center character, as you know the story. But you have, you have Peter, the front and center, at least human, or person, uh, yeah, human, because Jesus is a person, uh, human too. So, okay, I'm really messing this up, aren't we? But he's the divine human, right? No. 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 My mind's just racing as I said that. Anyway, Peter, who's traveling here and there, comes to a place called Lydda. And he goes to the saints in Lydda. That's verse 32. While he's there, and he's ministering to the saints in Lydda, and by the way, Lydda is a small town about six miles east of Joppa. In between Joppa and Lydda is this valley called Sharon. In any case, he's ministering there, and while he's ministering there, he finds a man named Inus. And this Inus person has been bedridden for eight years, and in the ESV it says that he was paralyzed. If you have the King James Bible, I believe it says he had palsy. Is that correct, Jim? Uh, verse 33, palsy. Palsy is not what we think of as palsy today, since the King James says palsy. Palsy we think of today uh, like people who are, have very little use of some part of their body, but sometimes it shakes as well. The only exception is Bell's palsy, which tends to affect one side of the face, and you get complete paralysis and it sags. Um, paralysis is probably a better term. Bell's palsy captures it closest, probably, what, it, what, what the idea was, except in this case, it wasn't Bell's palsy, because Bell's palsy is only one side of the face, typically. It actually has the idea of complete paralysis. This guy had paralysis, and in that day, palsy meant paralysis. That is, in the day of, of the King James being written. It meant paralysis. And since he's bedridden for eight years, that most likely means he's not just slightly paralyzed, like one arm or one leg. This guy is probably paralyzed from the neck down. We can surmise anyway. He's paralyzed from the neck down. He's been bedridden for eight years. The idea of being bedridden for eight years means, literally, he hasn't gotten out of bed. Which has, obviously, medically speaking today, uh, dire ramifications. If you lay for eight years, you're going to have all sorts of other issues as well. That's implied in the text. It's not there, but it's implied in the text. 
He's been bedridden for eight years with paralysis. Peter goes up to this man and he says to him simply, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And the text says, and immediately he rose. That is, immediately he was not paralyzed. Immediately he got up out of bed. For the first time in eight years, he was healed. What's the point of this? Now, when you go through the Gospels and you go through the book of Acts and you find these times when either Jesus is healing in the uh, Gospels or Peter or Paul are healing in the New Testament, we typically hear, and it's true, that it's an authentication of their, their Gospel message. Correct? But I think there's something else going on in these as well that is even more important probably. Yes, it was an authentication. But it is interesting when you look at Jesus' ministry, we're going to see this in, in, in the next story as well. When you look at Jesus' ministry of miracles and the occasional ministry of miracles that the apostles do, yes, it is a, a validation of the message that is being preached. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law of the Old Testament. All the law of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled it, and, he, and the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to this planet, very God and man, and he, he lived a perfect life for 33 years. He suffered. He died. He was crucified on the cross by lawless men. He conquered sin and Satan and death, and he was risen three days later, and then 40 days later he ascended to glory. That's a storyline. And Jesus came to provide salvation. And the demonstration of the truthfulness are the miracles that Jesus did. And then as Peter and Paul go out and proclaim the gospel and perform the miracles, it reauthenticates that message early on in the ministry of this change from Old Testament Judaism to this gospel that correctly was proclaimed looking forward in the Old Testament upon the Messiah. But there's something else going on here. It's very interesting whether you look at Jesus' ministry in healing and raising from the dead, or you look at Peter's and Paul's miracles that they're involved in, healing and raising from the dead. Here's something that you find. Just about every single time that the miracles are done, well, obviously raising from the dead applies, but also the healings, they are dramatic, aren't they? What I mean by dramatic is not what you think. What I mean by dramatic is he's not healing colds, is he? He's not healing somebody with a flu. But the least healing that takes place by Jesus or the or the, uh, or the apostles, is the withered hand thing. For the most part, and that's even dramatic because the hand's not functional, which means it's dead, right? It's dead. So you have either dead people being raised, or you have impossible situations. Non-functional situations, right? Like the paralyzed guy here. From the neck down, most likely completely paralyzed. Non-functional. Useless. Valueless. What value is there in a body that does not function? There's no value. And what does Jesus and then the disciples or the apostles do? They come to those situations 
And they either heal what cannot be healed, dramatically reversing what is impossible, or they actually, as we'll see in a few seconds, raise from the dead. What's that all about? Well, yes, it is a validation of their gospel message, but also it is a picture. And it's really important that we recognize this. With the death to life, it's a really clear picture, isn't it? They were dead and now they're alive. What's that a picture of? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? 1 through 9, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins and he made us alive, right? We were dead, now we're alive. We were lost, condemned, and dead, and now we are loved and cherished and made family and alive, right? Adopted as sons. It's a dramatic shift that is impossible. It is So in other words, like when we see in just a little bit with Tabitha, from death to life is a dramatic and clear picture, isn't it? of what spiritually takes place when someone is dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 that Ken quoted, and he makes us alive, takes us from death to life. Same thing with the paralysis. For all intents and purposes, this man being paralyzed in his body has, for all intents and purposes, a dead body, a non-functioning body, correct? And what does he do? He gets up and makes his bed. With a previously non-functioning body, his body begins to function. His body begins to function as it was designed to function, as it was supposed to function. Again, a picture of what the gospel does in people's lives. The gospel takes people not from physical death to physical life, but from spiritual death to spiritual life. So it's a picture of the powerful working of God. So what do we have here? In the first story, we have this man paralyzed from his probably neck down. Peter goes in, verse 34, and says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. It is important to notice what? Who's healing? Jesus Christ is, right? Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And verse 34 tells us, this didn't happen over a period of time, did it? It says immediately. Immediately he rose. Now it's very interesting, what takes place next is really interesting, because we want to, so often we want to camp on the amazing miracle, right? And we miss the point that it's just a picture of something, isn't it? As I just said, it's a validation of the message, the message of the gospel, and it's just a picture of something far greater. The far greater miracle in this text is not that this guy who is paralyzed for eight years got up and made his bed. That's not the great miracle here. That's just a picture of the greater miracle. What's the greater miracle? Verse 34. Or verse 35, I'm sorry. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, that is the previously paralyzed guy, and what? And they turned to the Lord. That's the miracle. That's the real miracle. Oh yeah, it was a miracle, taken from paralyzed to not paralyzed and functional, but the real miracle is that 
that just pictured physically what was about to take place spiritually in the people of Lydda and Sharon. As, and by the way, if I may just say this, and it's interesting, I think it's very purposeful, if you go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you see Jesus performing miracles with the exact same purpose, validating message, and most importantly, this is a, spirit, a physical picture of what happens spiritually. What did the people in Jesus' day want? They just wanted more signs. They weren't interested in the picture or the thing it was pointing toward. They just wanted the sign. But what's really interesting in this text is the, the picture miracle that's pointing to the greater miracle that could take place. Actually what? Happens. The picture miracle is the thing or the catalyst that the Holy Spirit uses for the actual great miracle to happen. And by the way, it is interesting. I, I've read a lot of commentaries in this text. And every commentary says something I disagree with. I know, I know that, that there are, the context is everything and it guides the understanding of words. But it is interesting, most people, what I'm talking about here is verse 35, what it says, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. I don't know about you, but that's a stunning statement to me. You know what the most stunning word in that section is? All. Which is what every commentator I looked at said, well, it probably wasn't everybody. It's probably more of a general statement. And I know sometimes in the scriptures all is used in a general statement, but usually, almost inevitably, the context guides if it's a general statement or a specific statement. In this case, there is a context, a close context, relatively close context, that I would argue leads this all statement to be astoundingly all. What's the context that helps us get this picture. Um, it is found in, let's see, where is it? Verse 42. In verse 42, after Tabitha is raised, this is what Luke records, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and what? Many believed in the Lord. You can't miss that direct contrast between 35 and 42. This is stunning in verse 35. Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and walk. He walks, and what happens? It says it, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And by the way, why would all the residents of Lydda and Sharon see him, you think? It doesn't say. Well, they're probably not all there. He probably did a whole lot of walking. It's a small area, small town, and then the valley of, of, of uh, a fertile valley where people worked in growing crops. He probably was walking all over the place. And they all knew him. Because small community, you know how small communities are. Right? Small communities, people know each other. How much more in that era? And what happens? 
as he most likely, now we suppose that this is what happened, but as he's walking around, people are seeing him. And you know what he's probably saying? <laughs> Thank you. He's not saying, I saw Simon Peter and he healed me. He's saying, Jesus Christ healed me. That's what he's saying. Kind of echoes out of the New Testament miracles too, doesn't it sometimes? Jesus Christ healed me. And they would have all heard because he's probably telling them about Jesus. Because he's a follower of Jesus now. And so what happens? There's a revival unlike anything ever seen. Not a revival, but a salvation experience taking place like never seen. Everybody in Lida and Sharon come to faith in Christ. Now, Peter's there too. He's ministering. He's there for a while, obviously. He's ministering to people. But everybody comes to faith in Christ. Let's not short sell the statement. The Spirit moves. And what is demonstrated in the physical miracle is skinned out in everybody's life as they all experience the greatest of miracles. They come from death to life. Which brings us to the next section, the next storyline, the next person. <clears throat> Starting in verse 36, we are introduced to this person in Joppa named Dorcas, or named Tabitha. And when it says Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, he's saying in Hebrew it's Tabitha, in Aramaic it's Dorcas. What it really means is gazelle, or deer. That's what it means. Not that, it mean, not that that's significant to the story, but he's just explaining who she is. <clears throat> so notice several things that we know about, about this person, Tabitha or Dorcas. Now there was in Joppa a disciple, first thing we know, she's what? A disciple, which means she's a learner and follower of Jesus. She's been saved. Notice what else it says. She was full of what? Good works and acts of charity. So she's doing all sorts of Good works, and the acts of charity could be a combination of things. It most likely is a combination of things. She's giving, giving probably money away, acts of charity, but she's also, we find directly into the text, is she's also giving away what, you think? Garments, clothes, to poor people. It says in those days, I'm sorry, uh, again, so she's full of good works and acts of charity. That's the end of verse 36. I just want to pause now for a second before we get into the rest of it. Luke just introduces her this way and moves off of it real quick. But I don't think we should move off of it real quick. Because remember what the operative verses that interprets the entire book? What's the operative verse that interprets and explains the whole verse? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But the Holy Spirit will come upon you, right? With power, right? But you will receive the Spirit, and you will what? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth, right? Or the ends of the earth. That's the statement in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> Here we have Tabitha, which means Dorcas. 
Hebrew, Aramaic. He says simply she's a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a worshiper, a learner, a disciple. But he adds this next statement, and the reason why he adds the next statement is because simply said, in just one short verse, what he's getting across is, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, you're going to be what? Changed. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, everything changes. Or to put it in a, in a gospel, the four gospels way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, you will bear fruit. And then he will prune you and you will then what? Bear much fruit. Correct? That's what it says in the Scriptures. That's what it says in the Gospels, the four Gospels. You will change. Whether you're looking in the Epistles or the Gospels, the point is, when the Spirit comes upon you, when you are saved, you will bear fruit. And that fruit will be evident. that make sense? The fruit will be evident. In verse 36, what Luke does in one short verse is gives you a picture and gives me a picture of what that looks like. We don't know anything about Tabitha before she is saved. We know absolutely nothing about this woman. But what we do know about this woman is something else. We know about what happened in this woman's life after she was saved. And the first thing we discover is when she's saved, she's a disciple. Now, that's easy to say. It's there in the text. But what, what that really means is this. When someone is saved, they become, remember what disciple means, a learner or follower. When someone is saved, they become that, a learner. I say that because I just want to pause this for a second because it is continually troubling to me when I find people say, and I'm not talking about, you just interview someone in the, in the United States. You say, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that are part of a seemingly halfway decent church. I know that statement is broad. I kept it broad on purpose. But they're, they're like a member of, of a seemingly good church. They attend regularly. And, and, and yet when I start probing into their lives and I ask them what they know about Jesus, I don't have much to say. And when I ask them, you've heard me use this illustration before, and I'll use it again. I'll ask them, what do you really love? And they tell me what they really love. Whether it's football or baseball, sports, hobbies, recreation, their family, um, uh, whatever it may be. And I ask them, what do you, why, why do you love it? What exactly do you love about it? They'll go on and on and on and on and on ad nauseum about it sometimes, right? If I may just use the illustration that is so applicable front and center in our world today, you go to the average Christian, you ask them, are you Republican or Democrat? And most people will declare one or the other, right? Except for Ken. <laughs> but most people will declare, well, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. And you say, so what is it about that you like? And you know what they'll do? And you give them free reign, and they'll talk for 
long, long, long time, won't they? And you'll hear, will you hear passion? Will you hear zeal? Oh, yeah, you will. And you ask the next question. So what, what, I'm just using the politics as an example. So what don't you like about the other side? And you'll hear passion and zeal again, won't you? It's just the opposite zeal and passion that you heard in the first one. And they'll go on and on and on and on and on and on. Ad nauseum again. And then you ask them, do you love Jesus? Oh yeah, I love Jesus. Well, tell me what you know about Jesus. And you listen, even as they talk, you don't hear zeal or passion, do you? So often. And usually it gets real shallow real quickly. And the conversation starts quieting down. They don't have anything to say. I can, I, it's usually an illustration. Let me ask you a question. What are they a disciple of? In that case, that illustration, they're a disciple of what? Politics. They're a disciple of their political team. Right? They're a learner and a follower of that. And they're they're demonstrating it with their passion, aren't they? With what really captivates them. You ask about Jesus. Well, Jesus is my Savior. Okay. What does that mean? Can you explain the gospel to me? What have you been reading in the scriptures lately? What has God been using in your heart lately, transforming you, ministering to you, bathing you, convicting you lately? And we discover very quickly who's a disciple and who isn't, don't we? We start it starts the flag start running up the flagpole real quickly, doesn't it? It really does. Because with, with Tabitha, Dorcas, notice how Luke describes her. It's interesting. His description of her is she was what? What's the next word in the ESV? In the ESV, what is it? She was, verse 36, full. Interesting choice of words Luke gives, isn't it? He didn't say she participated in. He didn't say she did good things once in a while. Right? It says, quite to the contrary, Luke records, she was full of good works and acts of charity. Do you, do, just in that little statement, do you sense a, a passion there? Now, it's not a passion. Let me correct, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I would argue it's not a passion for good works and charity. It's a passion for Christ. She's, this is all pouring out of being a disciple. She is passionate about Christ. She's a disciple. Her life is defined by being a disciple of Jesus. Her life is defined by She's a Jesus learner. She's a Jesus follower. If I may say it as bluntly as possible, I suspect if you went back to Sharon, if you were able to teleport yourself back to Sharon or back to... Um, what is it? Joppa, I'm sorry. If you could teleport yourself back to Joppa 
and walk around Joppa in this day and say to people, what do you know about Tabitha? What do you think they'd answer? Be careful. What, what do you think they would answer? I suspect that they would not say, firstly, she does all sorts of good things. I suspect they would not say, oh, she does all sorts of neat works of charity. You know, I suspect people in Joppa would say that day, she loves Jesus. She's a follower of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, she does these things. I don't think for a second that Tabitha was doing nice works and all people knew about her is nice works. I think she was very clearly doing what Peter just did in the previous text. I love Jesus and I just wanted to give this coat to you because Jesus gave me something so much more wonderful than even a coat. You see, it was just a picture. Isn't it? If Jim, if Jim was homeless and cold and they gave him a coat, that's a horizontal good thing, right? It's wintertime, give him a coat, nice thing. But isn't that coat just a picture of something greater? I can't imagine Tabitha giving Jim a coat and not telling him about Jesus. You know why? Because for Tabitha, it wasn't about a coat. It was about Jesus. And what she wanted for Jim was Jesus. And the coat was just not a means to an end, but it's just a, pic it's a picture. I'm clothing you with a coat, but Jesus clothes us with righteousness. Whoa. <laughs> That's stunning. But that would only come from a disciple of Jesus. That is it. That is it. So, interestingly enough, what Luke starts off is describing her as a disciple. And then the other two statements that he gives, full of good works and acts of charity, is pouring out of her being a learner of Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to present a social gospel here, because that's not what it is. See, a social gospel takes care of the needy and the poor, but it doesn't present Jesus. And I would present to you that even... <clears throat> Here's where we get sticky. The true gospel and true follower of Jesus does not, again, look at giving Jim a coat, again, as I just said, as just a means. Maybe it'll give me an opportunity to tell about Jesus. No. No, this actually is the picture that I want to talk about. I'm doing this not as a means, like maybe, maybe I'll earn a right to. That's the typical statement that's being made. Maybe this will earn me the right to tell them the gospel. No. No. She's doing it just like Peter talked about and Jesus did. This is a picture of something far greater, and I want to tell you about the far greater thing. I'll give you a coat, but it's about something far greater. It's about the gospel. And the coat, it's about being clothed in Christ's righteousness. Totally different. So anyway, 
and my, my, my point to bring this out in verse 36 is this. This is what a disciple looks like. We can't miss this. This is what a follower and a learner of Jesus looks like. And we know it every step of the way, right? Except for one false disciple, right? Whose name was? Judas. Outside of this, what do we find with the rest of them? They're out there doing what? Proclaiming Christ. Presenting the gospel. Absolutely. At least post-Acts 1.8. Verse 37, in those, in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was sent, or I'm sorry, was there, sent two men urging, urging him, come to us without delay. Now it could very well be, although I'm not sure this is the case, it could very well be that, that the absence in Luke's record here of giving a reason why that he should come is that people were trying to just manipulate him to get him there so that he would heal her. I don't think that's the case. I guess it's possible, but I don't think that's the case. Yes, the reason is not given, at least recorded in the book of Acts, but we don't know if they gave it and just wasn't recorded or what. I don't want to put evil motives manipulative motives on the people of Joppa at this point. A lot of people do that. I'm not sure I want to do that. It just says that they came and said, please come to us without delay. Verse 39. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. So when he first gets there, they take him to the upper room. Again, I don't want to weave in anything more than is there in this text at this point. So he goes up to the upper room. And then Luke records, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. In other words, and just so you're aware, in that day, if you were a widow, you had almost no source of income. And if you had almost no source of, no source of income unless you got remarried, then you were impoverished. If you're impoverished, you're pretty much in a hopeless state. And the evidence is that Lydia did what? She made clothes and gave them clothes for for them to wear. Tunics and other clothing for them to wear. Peter looks at all this, verse 40, and puts them all outside, tells them all to leave. He kneels down and prays. Turning to the body, he says, Tabitha, arise. And she came back to life. You know what it says? It's a pretty stunning story. Tabitha, arise. She opens her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. So she, just like Jesus did several times and performed miracles, where people came from death to life, in the same way, Peter, although Jesus did it under his own power as God, Peter is basically submitting to Jesus Christ to do the work. This isn't Peter performing the miracle. She, when he says, Tabitha, arise, she opens her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sits up, and he gave her a hand, and she, and she raised, and raised her up. Then Peter calls the saints and widows 
and presents her alive. Now it's interesting how the words how the how Luke records the text. How Luke records the event. He calls them all back in and he separates the two groups, doesn't he? It's interesting. Not separates them in the room, but separates them by description. Notice it again. Then calling the saints and widows. It's an interesting choice of words. Implying that there are saints there, that is, saints being believers, and widows who may very well not have been believers at this point. And he presents her to them alive. Needless to say, verse 42, that message bounces off the walls of Joppa, doesn't it? It's everywhere. The message is out all through Joppa. Tabitha is alive. Now, some people would say, Steve, come on. This is really over the top. Really, somebody went from death to life really over the top, don't you think? I mean, it's really easy to write that. Isn't it? I mean, anybody can write anything. I mean, look at Marvel Comics. Anybody can write anything. Right? <laughs> I know you'd appreciate that, Tim. But it's important to understand when, when Luke wrote this, many of the people, if not most of the people in Joppa, are still alive. <laughs> They're still alive. Luke is not an old like a, I'm sorry, a more recent text. It was one of the one of the earlier ones. It became known throughout all Joppa, and notice what happened. And what happened? Notice it. What happened? Many came to believe in the Lord. Many began to follow the Lord. It's not, hey Peter, do more miracles. Many became believers in the Lord. Many believed in the Lord. And verse 43, he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. So Peter stayed there and ministered to all these new believers. What an amazing time that must have been in Joppa and Sharon and Lydda, huh? Talk about an explosion of the church. But and we know, obviously, this explosion of the church took place. Why? Now watch yourself real quickly. Did it happen because of a miracle? Watch yourself. Did it happen because of a miracle? No, we know that's not the case because many times miracles were done and how many people believed? None! We know that's not the case. Why do these people believe? Because the Holy Spirit moved in their lives. And in two cases, everyone believed. And in one case, many believed. Why? Because of great miracles? No, because the Spirit moved in people's life and opened their eyes to see and took them from death to life and they became believers and followers and disciples of Jesus. Now what's the point of the text? The point of the text is not to be enthralled over a miracle. As in the first miracle. The point is not to be enthralled over a guy who was paralyzed and became whole physically. The point of the text is not to be enthralled over a girl who was dead and made alive. 
What's amazing is all these people being taken from death to life. What is stunning is that when the Spirit moves, people are saved. When God opens people's eyes, they are saved. And then what is really stunning is when people's eyes are opened and they are saved, what happens? They are changed. Isn't that what we see in the text? We see, we see pretty clearly that the paralyzed guy is not just healed physically, but he's pretty clearly healed. We know he's healed spiritually, isn't he? Because all in Sharon and Lida are saved. So you know that he's changed, and you know in being changed from death to life, he's doing what? As somebody said, I forgot who it was, I think Russ, you said it, he's walking. <laughs> right? He's walking and he's talking. And people are getting saved everywhere because you can just picture this formerly paralyzed guy absolutely transformed, loving the one who has changed him from paralysis to being physically able to walk, but most importantly, what? Remember what we said, the greatest miracle? Being taken from death to life. Now, I just want to stop on, on him for a second, but also Tabitha. I want you to think about it because it's really important. <clears throat> Let me just ask you. If you were paralyzed from the neck down for eight years, or if you died, lump them both together, with regard to paralyzed for eight years, and then some guy comes into your place where you are and he says in the name of Jesus Christ rise up and walk or if you're dead and he says rise up and you wake up from the dead got the picture you're either paralyzed or you're dead you're able now to walk or you're just alive just is the wrong word you're alive in either case, I just want you to wrap your mind around this for a second. Do you think, if I may, just, since you just came up here, Charles came up to me and said, I'm paralyzed. He says, rise up and walk. I'm like, whoa. I get up, hey, Charles, thanks a whole lot. By the way, can you believe what Trump said? <laughs> it's ludicrous, isn't it? Or... Ken rises me from the dead. Actually, the Spirit does, but Ken uses, or the Spirit uses Ken to raise me from the dead. And I say, oh, thank you for, for what, what, what happened. Thank you very much. How about those eagles, huh? Woo! I mean, are we being ludicrous yet? I mean, it's it would be crazy, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be insane? If somebody, just take the paralysis. If Charles took me from paralysis to non-paralysis. Do you think I'd be talking about that? Do you think I'd be thrilled about that? Do you think I'd just be forever thankful? I mean, doesn't that make sense? Doesn't it? Don't you think I'd revel in that? Don't you think I'd want everyone to know about that? 
Or do you think maybe I'd feel like, well, you know, it's kind of obligatory. I mean, <laughs> he did help me to walk again, so I guess it's kind of obligatory. I better talk about it. That'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Yeah, I guess I better talk about it again today. That'd be kind of weird. It's kind of expected. So I better tell someone about it. That's really weird. And we all know it. You can feel it in your bones, can't you? And we're talking about the lesser miracles, aren't we? We're talking about the lesser miracles in the text. The greater miracle is what? Regeneration from death to life spiritually. That's a greater miracle. That's an absolutely greater miracle. Because you know what? Tabitha was risen from the dead. You know what we know about Tabitha? Here's what we know about Tabitha. She's not on this planet today. Her body's not even on this planet today. She's turned back to dust. Right? And this previously paralyzed guy, he also died. The greater miracle is that when God makes us alive spiritually, the Bible tells us we will never die. He's talking spiritually, of course. Because the scriptures tell us there is a first death and a second death, right? Oh, we may die physically, and we most likely will. But there is a second death that it comes from the judgment seat of Christ. And when we stand before Christ, if we are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we will die for eternity in hell. That's really clear in the scriptures. We will. Which is the greater miracle? Eternal life. Isn't it weird that if Charles would be able to take away my paralysis, I'd talk about him for the rest of my life. Just about every time I hear about anybody with cancer, you know what I always say? Because about because my wife and because my brother, you know what I always say? Sloan Kettering! Yeah, check out Sloan Kettering. You know why? My, no, my brother passed away, but they did everything they could, and it was amazing what they accomplished. But my wife... She, they got river cancer. She hasn't, it hasn't come back. Phone gathering. I, I'm, someone says, oh, you know, I, I love, I love Pottstown Hospital for cancer. Um, and I look at, it, I say, Sloan Kettering, are you kidding me? Sloan Kettering is like the cat's meow. I'm not even shy about disagreeing with them. But when it comes to the greatest miracle, isn't it weird? Isn't it weird? So we find ourselves, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what I should say. I don't know if I should say anything. I'm too nervous. I'm scared. Do you hear that in the scriptures? Do you hear that in the scriptures? I know the scriptures tell us the flesh is weak. I get that. But the spirit is far greater, isn't he? 
I want to remind you when he said the flesh is weak was in the Garden of Gethsemane that's before the Spirit came with power. Absolutely was before. It is interesting that Luke presents Tabitha as someone who is disciple and it's clearly demonstrable. And we don't know anything about this guy who was paralyzed, but afterwards, evidentially, my goodness, the dude was shot out of a cannon with regard to Jesus. We know the story of the, of the blind guy that received his sight. Was he not shot out of a cannon for Jesus? I mean, it's pretty clear, wasn't he? Or just to stay close to the text, how was, how was Saul after he got saved? <laughs> Was, 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 he, uh, was he like, well, you know, after all I did, I guess I, I'm not really qualified. Is that how he was? I really don't know what to say. Do you find Saul saying, well, you know, they may not like me. Is that what you hear? Is that demonstrated anywhere in the text? Not just in, in, in Saul. But once the Spirit comes upon Peter, we've talked about it before, right? Afraid of a slave girl. Now, hey everybody, this same Christ who you crucified. <laughs> right? Transformation. And you see it every step of the way in the Scriptures. Except for a few exceptions. Like Demas. There are some exceptions. Diotrephes. Churches in Asia, right? You see it, it's there. But all those statements are clearly dripping with condemnation. The point of the text is going back to Acts 1 8 when the Spirit comes upon us, we receive power, and that power is transformative. Not just to do good things, but that, that doing good things is, is flowing out of being a disciple, a learner, a follower of Jesus. And we see the text, these two people, they're not running around telling people, look at, I was dead, now I'm alive. Physically, they're saying, I was dead, now I'm alive spiritually. And many people come to faith in Christ. The paralyzed guy is running around telling everybody not about Peter, but about Jesus. Nobody comes to become a believer in Peter. Do they? The only person who ever becomes a believer in Peter just for a short period of time is Simon the, the magician. And is he condemned or not? This is what the Spirit does. This is how the Spirit moves. This is what transformation looks like. The point of the story is not the secondary miracles. They point to the greatest of miracles. And can I just encourage us? Encourage and exhort. The encouragement is, this really is what the Spirit does. It really is. We can be confident in the working of the Spirit in our lives, if we're believers. We can be confident of that. 
appreciated your confession again this morning because one of the applications of the confession is, especially Habakkuk, you said it yourself, at the end of Habakkuk, he, gets, he knows it's coming. Destruction's coming. And what's his response? Yet I will trust in God my Savior. Whoa. Right? That's the work of the Spirit. That's transformation. That's what the Spirit does. That's the encouragement and the confidence we can have. The exhortation that we must have is to ask ourselves, do we have that Spirit? That's the question. And it always is a question, isn't it? It always is a question. Is that Spirit at work in my life? Is transformation, let me change that, has transformation taken place? Is it taking place? Is it continuing? Is the evidence that the Lord is at work in my life? Is are our fruit being borne by the Spirit in my life? And then He's pruning me, and it's bearing much more fruit. Notice what's not what I'm not presenting. I'm not telling you what so often is told is we need to be like Tabitha. Get out there and tell people about Jesus. Well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying we've got to be like the previously paralyzed guy. We need to go all over the place telling people about Jesus. You know why I'm not saying that? Because that's what the Spirit does in people that belong to Him. There's no command anywhere in this text. So I'm not going to put any command in the text. The exhortation, if I give any exhortation at all, is that we just, again, as always, examine our lives to see. To see what's going on. What's the evidence that the Spirit is at work? And then, obviously, the call throughout the Scriptures is, as we examine ourselves in the light of the truth of the Scriptures, to repent and believe. To repent and believe. Because you see the answer, and I, I've said this many times, the answer is the same whether you're a believer or not a believer or a wonder. Oh, maybe I'm not a believer. The answer is always the same. You know you're not saved. You know you are. You wonder. The answer is always the same. Repent and believe. The Spirit will do what He's going to do. Repent and believe. And the only way we will repent and believe is because the Spirit's at work in our lives. So let's pray. And let's worship God, shall we? Lord, help us. <clears throat> we do, as people, want to be told, just do this, do that, do something else, don't do this, don't do that, don't do something else. And in so doing, we would so violate this text. What a great demonstration of the power of the Spirit in someone's life, in two people's lives, and in many others. I ask you, Lord, to protect us from being self-deceived into thinking that I can do anything without your Spirit at work in me. And so, Lord, I pray that you will work in us, each of us, opening our eyes to see 
spiritually, what is true, drawing us toward you, bringing us to repentance, and that your Spirit will work in us powerfully so that the results will be as you have said it will be in the Scriptures for your glory and praise. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sting, shall we?